The reading for this afternoon today is taken from Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. starting from verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, and therefore the things that you have seen are those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." Thus far, in preparation for reading the text, let Myrna, which can be found in chapter 2 of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. And John receives a command, and he gets to write this down in the presence of, of Christ which you read in our reading, and this is what we read in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about, what you are about to suffer, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So far the word of God. After our sermon, we'll respond to the gospel by singing hymn 74, all stanzas.
Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in our text today, we read about the persecution of the church of Smyrna. Reading about the persecution in a New Testament church while living in Canada reminds me of a speaker that I heard in a conference, and perhaps you've heard him too. Some of you were there at that conference. And this, the speaker used to be an unbeliever, and he came to faith in Jesus Christ by reading the Bible, even though he never went to church. And when he decided to go to church, he thought he was nervous. He was nervous, and he thought it would be crazy to go to church because of what he read in the Bible, in the New Testament especially. He read that the Christians were those who were being persecuted. For example, Christ told his disciples, Behold, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. And think of what wolves do to sheep. They, they tear them apart. He imagined that if he were to be in a church building, he will be yelled at. Sit down. We may survive or we may not. So he was concerned. And one day he built up the courage to finally, finally go to church. And as he entered, what did he find? Someone greeted him. Hello, welcome. How may I help you? Unlike what he imagined, church was the safest place on earth. It was safe, safe, so safe that he said that it was a safe place for the whole family. And that's how church is in Canada. And it's quite different from what was going on in Smyrna, as we read. The Church of Smyrna was not a safe place for anyone. The Church of Smyrna was a church as the speaker at the conference imagined and expected. It was severely persecuted. So there is a big difference between what we experience here and what we read about in the Church of Smyrna. So is it relevant? Well, as long as we are in this world, the church of Christ will be persecuted because we know from Revelation chapter 12, for example, that Satan wages war against the church. Though the degree and the character of persecution might be different, this text still speaks into our lives, and perhaps even more so because of the difference. I think about this. If Christ can encourage and strengthen his believers his people in a more difficult situation, how much more would he be able to do so with us even if we live in a less difficult situation? Our circumstances might not be as extreme and as difficult and tough, but it is still a life of sorrow that we live in. So our Lord Jesus Christ calls us to listen to what he says to the church of Smyrna, and we also find that in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All the seven letters written to seven different churches are meant for anyone who has an ear that can hear. So the message for the church of Smyrna is also a message to us. And I proclaim the message of Jesus Christ under this theme. Christ encourages his church in the face of persecution. Christ encourages his church in the face of persecution. We'll consider two points. First, 
Christ encouragement for the present, and second, Christ encouragement for the future. We'll begin with Christ encouragement for the present. The text is a letter that was given to the church of Smyrna, and we know from what we read that the church of Smyrna was severely persecuted. And in the beginning of the letter, see how Christ describes himself in that context of persecution. He chooses two specific descriptions of himself in verse 9, in verse 8, sorry. He says, the words of the first and the last, that is the first description, and in the second description is, who died and came to life. Starting with the first one, what does it mean that he is the first and the last? By describing himself as the first and the last, Christ is bringing our focus to the, fo- the concept of time. In respect to time, Christ is the first and the last. That is, he, he existed from the beginning to the end. In fact, he is eternal. He, he existed eternity into the past and also eternity in eternity to the future. And not only did he exist in all eternity, he has power over time. He is the eternal sovereign. Why is this important for the persecuted Smyrna church? And this is something that Christ highlights for the church of Smyrna because this is something that they remember in persecution. So that, for example, when Christ later writes, for 10 days you will have tribulation, that's exactly what they can expect. It will be 10 days. He has control over time. He is the first and the last. Moving on to the second description, who died and came to life. The words themselves are straightforward. We know what dying is. We know what it means to come to life. But what is the significance? Why does Christ refer to himself? Why does he refer to his death and resurrection? And that's because when Christ later in verse 9 says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, and slander, the church can be assured that he does, in fact, know. He experienced all of it. He's been through it. He is the one who died. No one even came close to experiencing what Christ has suffered. No one has experienced tribulation, poverty, and slander as Christ did. So when Christ says, I know what you're going through, the church of Smyrna can be assured that he actually does know them. He knows it more intimately than they do, actually. He knows it fully and comprehensively. And what exactly is that that he knows about the church of Smyrna? We find it in verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander. Let's go through these three things, starting with tribulation. What kind of tribulation was the church of Smyrna experiencing? Historically, we know that the church of Smyrna was a wealthy city in Asia Minor under the rule of the Roman Empire. And there were many factors that intensified the tribulation and persecution of the church of Smyrna. First, the city was one of the foremost in emperor worship, the worship of Caesar. 
Second, there were a lot of Jews in Smyrna. And third, life at that time was not, it was not individualistic as it is for us in the Western world, but it was collectivistic. That means that the interest of the group was more important than the interest of the individual. In Smyrna, that meant life was centered around the family, especially around the father. That means the family members would follow the religion of the father and not their own, because the father is the head of the household. And that means if, if the family was Greco-Roman, they worshipped Roman gods, Greco-Roman gods like Jupiter and Venus, their household gods, and the emperor. If they were Jews, they would have practiced Judaism. In that context, following Christ, believing in Jesus Christ, came with tribulation. How would converting to Christianity in a collectivistic society like that look like? As an illustration, that's what happened 50 years ago in South Korea. Back then, on every holiday, there would be a family gathering, and the family prepared the best food and prepared a table for the ancestors. And they bowed before the ancestors to show respect, honor, and gratitude. They, they would also ask for, pray for protection and prosperity. And imagine the, the tension and conflict that would arise within the family if a family member who was not a father started to follow Christ. Imagine the conversation. What, what do you mean you're not going to bow before the ancestors? in front of all the other family members. That is a tradition. And who do you think will be blamed if something bad happened to the family? And who would be the one who has angered the ancestral spirits? This was common. And what I'm about to share, I, I, I do with permission. So my father is the youngest of eight siblings. That makes him at the, the bottom of the rank. And he was the first to believe in his family. And, and on top of that, my grandfather actually was a, was a teacher of Tenrigyo, uh, a Japanese religion. And when I was writing the sermon, I asked my father, what, what happened when you refused to sacrifice to the ancestors? I believe he was about, oh, he was in high school at that time. And my father when my father refused, my uncle, uncle, sorry, my uncle was told that when, once someone falls into Christianity, it's, it's, he won't be able to leave that religion and that belief later on, so he has to be straightened out early on. So that day, my uncle beat my father with, with a washing pedal. And there are numerous stories like that, and even worse stories than that, especially a generation earlier, most of them got kicked out. Many of them were disowned by their family. Now, that's how the Korean family was, and that's how powerful the Korean fathers were. But the Roman fathers were even more powerful than that. The Roman fathers had the right 
to even kill, kill their children. So imagine the persecution that would follow if one of the children in a Roman family would decided to follow Christ, to refuse to take part, partake in a sacrifice to the Roman gods or to the emperor, or in a Jewish family. Who, imagine what would happen if someone refused to partake in the Passover and the feasts. And that's the kind of tribulation and persecution Christ is referring to in this text. Let's move on to poverty. And you can already see and imagine how tribulation and persecution would lead to poverty, losing family ties, being isolated from the community, being in conflict with the Jews and the Roman authorities. And furthermore, emperor worship was so common in, in, in Smyrna that it was required by law. And you had to do them especially if you wanted to become healthy or, or obtain a high position in the government. And you can imagine how that would have, have detrimental effect on their finances and their, their, their business. And another aspect to consider is networking. The Roman Empire was a promiscuous and sensual society. And imagine how their social events would have been. Also male-dominated society. How would a Christian connect with the next client without going to those social events? Like back when I was in middle school, I remember my Sunday school teacher who worked in a corporate setting, he once told us how difficult it is to be a Christian at work. I later found out that one of the difficulties for a Christian was to be, to be promoted in a company. In order to be promoted in, in South Korea back then, employees were expected to treat or entertain an employer, a superior, in order to be promoted. And this might happen in a, in a karaoke place with drinks and female attendance. And through another conversation with a cousin, I found out that the same kind of social event was expected to get contracts and bring work for a company. Apparently, it's, apparently it's like considered something like a pep talk, a gesture of expressing, okay, let's, let's do this work together. We're in this together. And since Christians can do that, cannot do that, it's harder to be promoted in work or to find work. And it's not as if these people were trying to be wealthy, acquired, trying to acquire a huge amount of wealth. They have a family, a wife, and children who are they're responsible for. And that's how Christians are suffering in South Korea, where their polls, where the stats actually show that Christianity is one of the dominant religions. Imagine how it would have been in the Roman Empire, in Smyrna. The situation would have been far worse. Smyrna, again, it was a city for foremost in emperor worship. And as a result, Christians were poor. And that's why Christ mentions poverty. And finally, we come to the slandering by the Jews. 
the Jews were bringing false accusation against the Christians, and, and why would Jews wish evil and do such evil things against Christians? Because to them, Christians were offensive. They were claiming to be true Israelites and true Jews. But in their eyes, Christians were blasphemous because they were serving and worshiping Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, a mere human being in their eyes, as God. Also, Christians were morally corrupt because they weren't celebrating and keeping the Jewish ceremonies. So the, as the text says, the Jews were bringing false accusations against the Christians. And we could think of Jews following the Apostle Paul around in, in the book of Acts, saying that Paul is causing trouble, going against Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. In such ways, they were persecuting the church. So even if they were biologically Jews, Christ highlights that they were acting in accordance with the will of the devil and, and so calls them a synagogue of Satan. They were persecuting the church, going against the will of God, doing the will of the devil, slandering and bringing false accusations. And those and slandering and bringing false accusations and being accused falsely adds an extra layer of difficulty and suffering and this is what I've observed, because when false accusations are brought to you and you're accused falsely, you are suffering unjustly. And people are more willing to suffer for what they've said, what they believe, on who, and who they actually are. But when they're suffering because of false accusations, your words are twisted, and you're accused of doing something that you actually haven't done. That's an unjust suffering, and it eats away at you. So on top of tribulation, poverty, the church of Smyrna was also experiencing slander. Well, what does that matter? Well, that's what our brothers and sisters around the world this is experiencing as we speak. Some of you here, or some of you who are listening right now, might have emigrated from a country that is non-Christian, and you might have experienced something similar to what I've been similar to what I've been telling you. And even in Canada, you might have been persecuted, and you might be persecuted in some way. You might be discriminated at a workplace overtly or covertly. Or worse, there might be persecution even among our peer groups, and that would be for being too Christian as if it was possible. Perhaps instead of pursuing what your peer groups approve of, you're pursuing holiness, trying to be more like Christ, and you're a laughingstock. Even if that's not the case, persecution will happen because following Christ goes against our own human sinful nature. So there's always going to be persecution for those who follow Christ, who in fact were persecuted himself. He was persecuted, he went the way of persecution, and we follow him in the same way. 
but there is encouragement. Whatever you are suffering as a Christian, our eternal God, Jesus Christ, knows. He understands fully what you are going through at school, at, at work, in your family. In fact, he had firsthand experience. He knows more than anyone else what it means to suffer and to be poor and to be accused falsely. First, he knows what it means to suffer. He was abandoned, abandoned by his people, the people of Israel, by the Jews. He was abandoned by his family who thought he was insane. Even by his closest disciples who, whom they, he discipled for three years, he was abandoned. And most of all, he was forsaken by his own father. Furthermore, as he wrote, he is the one who died. He suffered unspeakable pain on the cross. So when he says he knows your tribulation, he fully knows what you're going through. Secondly, remember that Jesus came from a poor family. His parents brought a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons because they could not afford a goat or a sheep, a lamb. And thirdly, Christ was accused at least twice for casting out demons by Beelzebub, by the power of the devil. That was false accusation. And, and he was, his death was brutally unjust, unjust. He, was, he died a brutal death on the cross with no charge. Pilate said, I have no charge against him. Again, that said, no one understands the persecution of the church as Jesus does. And the Apostle Paul, for example, persecuted the church before his conversion. Christ said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul persecutes the church, and Christ identifies with the church. He says, why are you persecuting me? The church is his body. The tribulation Poverty, slander of the church is on his mind and is in his heart. And he feels your pain and his heart breaks for you because of it. When you're persecuted, remember that he knows what you're going through. You're not alone in your suffering. Coming back to our text, let's pay attention to the encouragement for the future, which is the second point. In verse 10, Christ refers to a future suffering. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. About to suffer, it points to the future. Then Christ elaborates, behold, the devil is about to throw you into prison. Things will not get better for the church of Smyrna because the devil himself was involved all along. He's the dragon that goes after the offspring of the woman. He won't stop. He will only, in fact, get fiercer because he knows that his time is short. So some of the members of Smyrna will be thrown into prison. In prison, they might be... A prison is a brutal place in prison, they might be inflicted with pain. 
simply because prison is a place where torture and brutality were routine. They might, for example, get tortured for entertainment. As you know, men can become quite cruel in such circumstances. Or they might be tortured in a form of investigation and interrogation. They might be tortured for information of who the leaders are in the church and where they are, and so on. And in, in the face of that kind of persecution, Christ commands or perhaps comforts them, saying, do not fear. And with uh, the power of his word, he calms their fears. And how in, in the world are they not going to be afraid in a situation like that? How would they possibly overcome fear? And part of overcoming fear depends on where people focus. As an illustration, I don't know if you had the privilege of climbing mountains. As, when I was writing this sermon, I was in BC, and I had the privilege of climbing those beautiful mountains. And, and some, sometimes close to the peak, there are sections where, there, where it's precarious, where you have to scramble, where you have to go on your knees and, and climb the mountain. In those sketchy areas, you might look down and think what would happen if you would fall. And then your knees might start feeling wobbly, your legs feeling a bit weird, which in fact would, would strengthen the sense of losing control and then it would increase your fear and anxiety. And it could be paralyzing and quite scary. But what I found helpful is this. Instead of looking down, was to focus on where I'm going, just focusing on the next step. And that might help you climb to the peak and come down back safely. Now, in those situations, what calmed my fear, or what might calm your fear, wasn't, isn't a change of situation. Now, it's not a change of circumstances. It's, it's a change of your focus. Like what I changed was where I chose to focus. I could either look down or like I could look ahead. Like I'm not just using this as a metaphor, but it's more than that. At least it works physiologically. It works in how we act in this physical world. It also works spiritually. Likewise, in persecution, don't look down but up. Don't focus on the situation but on Jesus Christ. Even in persecution, Jesus Christ is in control this passage makes it clear that Christ is in control by pointing out that he determined the purpose, the duration, and destination of persecution. Right, the main thing that we have to focus on is Christ, is that Christ is in control, and that truth comes with three implications, three things that we can remind ourselves in persecution, three things. First, purpose, second, duration, Third, destination. And first, purpose. Why, why are they and why will they be persecuted? Although it's the devil who throws some into prison, God, God uses that persecution to test his children. Verse 10, we read, in verse 10 we read, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison 
And here's the purpose, that you may be tested. Right? It's a test. Indeed, it's a very difficult test. But when we're, when we're persecuted, we cannot say that this persecution and this suffering is meaningless. They can't say that it's arbitrary. Nor is it the case that they're abandoned by their Lord Jesus. What they will be going through is a test to be proven that they are faithful to Christ. When, their faith, when, they, when the test is over, when their faith is proven to be genuine, they will receive rewards. Right? The purpose, God, Christ is in control, and he decides what the purpose of the persecution is, and it is a test. Moving to the second implication, duration of the persecution. How long will it last? And we see that in verse 10. Again, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. And by ten days, Christ doesn't literally mean ten days. This is symbolic language as the book is. It might be, have been shorter or longer. But what, does, what this indicates, what, what we do know is that it indicates a short and definite time, especially compared to the reward that will come later on. Maybe, maybe it will be 10 days because they'll be released, or more likely, they'll die, which will put an end to their persecution. And that's why Christ continues and exhorts them, be faithful unto death. He mentions death. And some of the members of Smyrna will be martyred. And we know from history that this is, in fact, what happened. There's a well-known church, early church father named Polycarp. And he was the disciple of the Apostle John who wrote the letter of Revelation. We know that he was a martyr. He was, in fact, called the 12th martyr of Smyrna. And this is how he died. It's been recorded that a Roman proconsul told him to bow before the emperor and deny Christ. Oh, this is supposedly what Polycarp said. Eighty-six years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He was burned on a stake. They say he was offering a psalm of praise and thanksgiving to God as he died. And that's an example of being faithful unto death. Can you imagine facing persecution like Polycarp did? Don't you find it frightening? Yet, be faithful unto death is a command given to all of us. We too must hold on to the confession that we made. But how? As I've been telling you, as, as this text is, has been showing, by focusing on Jesus Christ, the three implications during persecution. And that brings us to the third aspect of persecution, destination. What comes after persecution, especially for those who will be martyred? 
eternal life. Christ encourages the church of Smyrna by, by saying, I will give you the crown of life. That is verse 10, at the end of verse 10. The crown of life, which is a wreath that symbolizes eternal life. Indeed, a fitting crown for those who conquer. And to make eternal life more real for us, more concrete for us, Christ highlights, highlights that there will be no pain in eternal life. In verse 11, the concept of eternal life is, is expressed in the negative. And he says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And think of how comforting and fitting this is as an ending for a letter written to people who are faced with death and will be faced with death, faced with persecution and, and death. It seems, and we know that pain speaks more loudly than pleasure. A person who is being tortured in prison would not be thinking of a vacation or some delicious food. He would just want the pain to end. So when, when Christ mentions that, and when he gives a promise that pain will end, that there will be no pain, when he promises freedom from pain, it connects with him. So Christ says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Our eternal life is not just our life on earth is stretched into eternity. The quality is dramatically, infinitely different. To be more concrete, it's life without pain, suffering, persecution, or the fear of death for eternity. Dear congregation, do you believe in eternal life? Do you know that eternal life in heaven with our Savior Jesus Christ and with our triune God is already ours by faith? I think how vividly Christ makes this for his church. Just think about how this letter is written. This letter, this text was written by the Apostle, Apostle John by dictation in the presence of Christ. Christ is telling him exactly what he has to write and John is writing this down. The Apostle John has seen heaven. He was shown the thrones, the four living creatures, the elders, the crowns, the rainbow, all the jewels, the multitude of, sin, uh, multitude of saints, sorry, all the glory, and most of all, the triune God himself. Imagine the Apostle John coming out of that vision, out of the revelation, back to earth. Yes, there is persecution, poverty, there is slander, imprisonment, and even death. But his mind and his heart would have been filled with, with a vision, with the reality of eternal life with his Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? The focus would be in heaven. And that's, that's how we should be. Look to Jesus Christ who died and came to life, and not only came to life, who's seated in heaven on the throne, surrounded by the heavenly host, 
and know that, that you too will receive the crown of glory and crown of life to join in that multitude. So be faithful to him unto death. Amen.